Hello, and welcome to the Writers Guild Foundation podcast. I'm Enid Portuguese, Communications Director for the Foundation. Today's podcast is a recording of our September 6th event with William Blake Heron, who co-wrote The Born Identity and Ripley Underground. He also created the TNT series Agent X about a covert operative who handles cases the CIA and FBI can't. We co-hosted the event once again with the wonderful folks at NYU Tisch in LA. So Heron speaks with fellow NYU alum, Elliot DiGiuseppe, about his experience writing within the worlds of espionage. Another interesting perspective he gives is on studio assignments and how writers can make a living in that realm. Don't forget to check out our upcoming events at wgfoundation.org. We also have an awesome poker tournament on Friday, October 21st at the Foundation Library. You can sit and play poker with some of the best writers in the business, including Matt Weiner, Simon Kinberg, Craig Mazin, David Shore, and many more. All proceeds go to the Veterans Writing Project. So go sign up for that after listening to this podcast. Until the next time, enjoy Character Sketch with William Blake Heron. Hey, everybody. Uh, thanks so much for coming out tonight. Uh, so we're going to be talking with Blake Heron today. Delightful guy. He has done so much from independent film to uh, cable television uh, to big movies, all sorts of things. Some of his credits are uh, The Born Identity, Role Models, uh, and Agent X. I am so excited to have a chat with him. Uh, and so let me just introduce him. Come on out. Blake, everyone. Is this on? Oh, good. Okay. You sound great. I, I, I am feeling good. One glass of wine, middle-aged suburban dad. Yeah. Right, right. Everything is nice and lubricated, and I think we're ready to learn a lot. And so I, I just want to start uh, at the beginning, really. So this is uh, co-hosted by uh, Tish West and also uh, the Writers Guild. And so I was hoping we could just sort of start at the beginning, if you could kind of tell us your breaking-in story. And, you know, in particular, I know you went to NYU for a while. Um, you know, did you find that your education was like a nice preparation for the professional world or, or not just kind of take it wherever you want to go uh, yeah it's um uh, well I should ble- uh, briefly my biography because it's it's a little bit I've had kind of like five lives and I've resold them in various forms in town so <laughs> okay uh, so uh, let's see after high school um, I worked at the Guthrie Theater in Minnesota for some big directors Minnesota person yeah. all right yay all right oh I went to Shattuck where'd you go <laughs> Oh, this thing will we'll not work. We'll go. <laughs> yeah, oh, very good. So there, uh, then uh, I went to college uh, out east at a little school called Middlebury, which is known for languages, so I studied Russian, uh, and they had a program in the Soviet Union. So I got to study in Moscow, and I ended up going back there 12 times after working there back and forth. Uh, I worked for Billy Joel as his music liaison. I did political delegations. This is relevant because this is how I got born identity. Um, after college, uh, and acting in college as well, I went to New York with my rock band, uh, <laughs> Uh, and played at CBGB's and Pyramid Club and all that kind of stuff. And, and God, we were awful. I don't know why anyone hired us, but, but they did. And that's relevant because the music helped me get into NYU film. Because at that time, uh, NYU had their grad students 
uh, uh, pick the incoming class. And someone commented on me that no one had sent in a demo tape. So they wanted someone who played guitar. So I was there. <laughs> to support the rock band, I worked, uh, I considered becoming a lawyer. That was kind of my fork in the road. I worked at Fried Frank Harris Schreiber and Jacobson, which is a big law firm specializing in mergers and acquisitions, takeovers, in a feeder program. You sell your soul for two years, you go to law school, then you come back and they own you forever. And my first deal there was the TriStar restructuring of Columbia, the studio Columbia. So I, I, I did what any resourceful person does. I looked in all the confidential memos and stuff, and I got to see studio financing. So even though I was uh, kind of an arty guy or considered myself an arty guy, I had you know, tons of black in my closet, I, I did have a con an understanding going into film school of the business, and that did give me an advantage. So then I went to NYU, I got lucky, I won some awards. Uh, I decided I would only do art film, so I would starve. So I wrote, I wrote a bunch of scripts, um, uh, like you, uh, doing so well on the blacklist. The contest helped break me, uh, the, specifically the nickel. I had, uh, mm. in one year I had one script to finish in the top 20 at Sundance, and uh, one that to finish in the top 10 of the nickel, uh, a very commercial thing about psychiatric uh, torture of political dissidents in Russia, and um, which only one person read, John Landgraf at FX, thank you very much. Uh, and, uh, but you see how these, these seeds get planted and they you know, uh, build uh, flowers down the road. And I had another one finished in the top 200. So, uh, so yeah, so that started getting me a little bit of heat and my short films did well. Uh, I got real super lucky and won the Princess Grace Award um, and I was not wise enough. You guys moved to LA. I should have moved to LA at that point. Um, so you're already years ahead of me at that point. Instead, I starved and I and I suffered. And I was very, uh, very much a romantic artist, but going nowhere. And then um, someone, friends of mine, I've been traveling back and forth to LA, and uh, had been some of the big agencies to come after me. Um, CAA in particular wanted me to wanted to sign me uh, on a Texas funeral. They wanted, and they wanted to sell that script to Rob Reiner. Evidently, I was told Castle Rock wanted it, and they were going to give me four hundred thousand dollars. And I said no because it was about my family, and I wanted to direct it myself. Uh, and I eventually got to do it, which was the best thing that ever happened to me in my whole fucking life. Um, so anyway, but now no one wants me because I'm the tr trouble child. I'm the guy who won't sell out. So I'm sitting in New York and I'm starving and people I had met here had $100,000 in development funds that were going to disappear. And they said, do you want to make a movie? And I want to be a director. And you need uh, 35 million. Oh, is this game boring at any point? No, or, no, uh, no, no. Yeah. I, I am, I, I'm riveted. Oh, good. This is becoming a soliloquy at this point. No, no. It's, uh, I'm going to wake up. And this, this is like a narcissistic dream. You know, I'll have to. I, 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 I can assure you, the last thing anybody wants to hear is me. Uh, <laughs> oh, no, no, no. No, no, oh, no please go ahead. Uh, yeah, I want your life. You're young. Um, so... Uh, so anyway, uh, uh, so these guys, they say, okay, we got 100 grand. It's disappearing, literally disappearing in six weeks. And we haven't bought anything. Would you like to make a movie? And I said, yes, give me a week. So um, when I was at NYU, uh, the way it was structured way back when in the grad school is that you, you made a kind of a real movie by second year, and then your third year you did your thesis. And my second year film did well for me. It won some awards. And you, my thesis was never going to be any better. And I was broke anyway. I was you know, borderline homeless. So um, I had saved my thesis notion script, which was like 30 pages. And I stretched that out with the idea that I would shoot this thing. I'd just get it done. Uh, There's a little mini feature. And then I would cut it down to like a really awesome 30 minutes that I would show around. And, uh, and, and it didn't totally suck. That was a problem. Uh, so it's called Skin Art. And within that, that one movie, I learned everything I would need to learn down the road. For instance, 
we, I, I, I was dealing with burgeoning stars like Kirk Baltz and Jake Weber. Jake Weber I'd gone to college with. So I got that experience. I got to work with 35 millimeter. I had to work fast. Uh, I only did 71 minutes because I thought, well, that's what you need for a festival. Little did I know that my producers needed 90 minutes. So suddenly we were royally fucked. We had this like moment where I turned in my 71 minute cut, pretty proud of myself. And they're like, okay, we're fucked. So we had to take all the rest of our post money and put that into a reshoot. And so suddenly I had to think of how can I write 20 more minutes uh, that will fit into this thing, which will help me on Agent X when we get to Agent X, because uh, I was in a similar situation with that. So I came up with something like a flashback thing that you could do about this character's um, past history, which ended up being the most popular part of the movie. And, uh, and we finished it, but we had no money in post. So I had to do everything at that point. And including partial composition. So I did the negative conforming. I did, uh, we ran out of money for Steenbeck. And so by then I kind of knew how long frame rates took. So I, I cut the last scenes, actually just me in my living room, eyeballing kind of shit. <laughs> um, and then they, they, I know it gets even worse. Yeah. And then we, um, we had one shot to sell it. We, we had just enough money to do like a little screening here in town at uh, the old um, uh, Andy Vanya's place. He had a screening room. So, we, uh, so I flew in on the plane. Um, again, I had nobody working with me. So I'm double splicing the footage. I'd been up for like two weeks straight. Double splicing the footage on the plane. Um, and I get there just in time. And I'm not sure it's even in fucking sync. And we show it to uh, distributors. And it sells to Pandora, which was a big, I don't know how, which was a big foreign sales company. And suddenly I'm on a plane to Cannes to sell this because they do big movies. And my movie's not good. I just really want to emphasize it. It's not very good at all. And, um, and then, so in Cannes, I get to meet everybody. And everybody assumes I'm somebody because I, I wouldn't be in Cannes. I wouldn't be in this hotel. I wouldn't be going to all these big parties because uh, Pandora worked with DDA and all the KDM and all the big uh, marketers and people like that. And off of that, uh, it was those connections that led to a Texas funeral, the people I met at a Texas funeral. And then when we got back, Fox, for God knows, God knows why, picked it up for uh, video. So suddenly I was legitimate. We got into film festivals. And I looked it up on IMDb, and it has a six. And I have no idea how this movie got a six. Mm -hmm. So then I cut it down to 30 minutes, and that became my, and th those were good 30 good minutes. And that became my reel when I was trying to get a Texas funeral made. So there, sorry. No, no, no. No apologies needed, none accepted. Something like that's really great. And, you know, it's, it's, it's great to hear that, you know, you were writing, you were writing, you were writing, and you were able to, um, you know, get a feature under your belt. Do you find that, that this process, has it shaped you as a, a writer or a storyteller? Do you learn something about, you know, economy or like, like, how how has it helped you? Oh, do you mean uh, you mean the indie kind of thing? Or yeah, the, sure. What, yeah, and uh, and and uh, kind of prelude to that is uh, I, I I I learned by just failing repeatedly. I, mm -hmm. I wrote uh, just copiously uh, after. Uh, and I started writing features in film school because, thank you, Wall Street, I learned that, that that was your ticket in, that nobody needed a short film. Everyone needs a feature film, feature script. So that's your real estate. So I started writing. By the time I finished NYU, uh, or I actually didn't technically finish NYU, um, I had four features, and I wrote about four features a year after that. So I had 12 features under my bed, belt, and I started reading for Peter Miller at that time, who was, a, who was kind of a slick manager who handles true crime, like Vincent Bugliosi is one of his big uh, clients. And he had this scheme where people would pay him to read uh, and give comments. And so I was the guy, absolutely unqualified. People would pay me $150 to read their scripts and be a script doctor. 
So I ended up reading, you know, like 600 <laughs> scripts in a year, which was immensely helpful as well. Mm -hmm. So, so by the time I got to LA, um, uh, and I finally did come to LA, with I, I had this like crappy independent feature that looked good on paper with 30 good minutes. I had scripts that had you know been some won some awards, um, and I had uh, I had been uh, I had pissed off two major agencies, CAA and UTA. So, uh, so then I rebuilt my career, but that was enough to get like a boutique agent. And, um, uh, and, and, and it was really strange. I was here for two weeks, literally starving. I came in here, I arrived here with a car with 200,000 miles on it, 200 bucks in my pocket, sleeping on a couch with my uh, ex-roommate. And within two weeks, I, I had optioned a Texas funeral to direct it. And within four months, uh, uh, I was writing a, f a feature for Warner Brothers. Mm -hmm. Can we can we talk a bit more about a, a sure. Texas funeral? Because I, sure, yeah. I understand that it's something that's like you know close to your heart. Your yeah, it's probably the least interesting thing for people here. It's probably born or whatever. But for me personally, yeah. it's the most awesome thing in the world. It's the uh, it's uh, the one nearly perfect experience in my film career. Like after I made it, uh, I knew I could be hit by a train. And life would be fine, you know, uh, because it was it was based on my family. It's semi-autobiographical. It's a magical realist piece. Extremely difficult to get made. Uh, we, uh, I, I, money was being thrown at me all the time, not just Rob Reiner to part with it, uh, and and I gave, literally gave up meals at times. To, to hold on to it. And we went through, I think, at one point, 32 different sets of cast, and we needed six to get it made. And uh, through the connections of can, I came upon a guy named Damien Jones, who's amazing. I don't know if you know him, British producer, but he, he did Iron, Iron Lady and among other, he just did absolutely fabulous. But he was here. Um, he was working for Working Title at that time and just producing on his own. Had gotten gridlocked made as well as, I think, one other thing. And he believed in it. And he took it to, God bless the Europeans, uh, J&M, which was a British company that did lots of Hallstrom's movies. And they loved it, but we needed a huge cast. We couldn't get the right cast. Uh, or we kept losing people. You know, we'd get Vincent D'Onofrio, who was massive at that time, and then he'd go do a movie, and we'd lose two people because everyone wanted to work with Vincent. And Greg Kinnear was kind of attached, and then he gets, he gets his Oscar. Okay, fuck you, Greg, you're gone. And so, um, and it was like this over and over again. I tried to get Nick Cage. I got Nick Cage uh, uh, more or less attached, and they wouldn't finance him. And then a week, month later, he wins an Oscar. It's, it's like really horrible. And then... Uh, Jane, and then there's this, there's a, the version of, British version of Variety is called Screen International. And they called up the Damien's office in London and said, what projects do you have? And there was a temp secretary, this is a true story, temp secretary, who said, okay, we've got a Texas funeral, and she read them the names of every person who had been attached, uh, and not the whole process. So it looked like we had this fucking army of people, work, uh, just amazing, you know, Oscars, it was like glittering. And, and, they, and they print it, and, and, and J&M's like reading this going, this is amazing, you know, we, we've got we to have this movie. So they call us up, and we, of course we cop to it, but by then they're kind of hooked, and they felt sympathetic, you know, nostalgic for it. And there was this thing at the time called the, the Chase Bank was offering negative insurance, the stupidest thing they could have possibly done at that point. And all the studio, everyone was raping Chase. They were putting uh, executive producer fees into the negative insurance and then not worrying if the movie made money. So J&M said, great, we're gonna do that. So they, they charged 400 grand to themselves uh, off the top on a, tech, on a Texas funeral and then they made this wildly uncommercial movie and we ended up with the right cast as you always do and it was really magical. It was everyone was making the same movie. I had big stars who actually like listened to me. Martin Sheen went on the first day of the set and like put everybody in their place by calling me Maestro. You know, after that, then it's like, uh, you know, he's just I can't even say enough about that guy. 
Uh, and then, you know, we make the movie, and I ended up putting my entire salary back into it. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a wild movie. It has camels, it has gunfighting, it has all, courts, all sorts of things. Um, uh, uh, just a love letter to my family. So I felt pretty good about myself. And then we got into Venice, and so I got that experience, you know, that uh, got standing ovation in the Palais, and, uh, and we won an award at the LA Independent Film Festival. And, and so it was nice. Um, and, then, uh, and then Hollywood came knocking with bags of money, and... Mm -hmm. uh, Terry Malick introduced me to my wife, so I wanted to make bads of money and make babies. So it all kind of worked out. No, I understand. There's, there must have been a motivation there. And and is this when um, when your involvement with with Born started, or yeah, but, this is sort of built as a yeah, Born was conversation my, uh, on spycraft and spies? So oh yeah, spies. Yeah, but Born, segue. Born. This is the way it always works out. Born was a throwaway gig. Born. I was. I was. I literally had not paid my rent. I put all my money in a Texas funeral, and I called up my agent. I said, I, I need an assignment gig, and uh, he said. Doug Lyman had uh, wanted to direct Ripley Underground. He'd been a fan of it. Uh, so I knew him, you know what I mean? And so it's like Doug just had, did really well with Go, was an independent movie he directed, made money, and Universal's throwing money at him to do a big spy thing. He wants to do this. This is his baby. Do you want the gig? And I'm like, yeah, fuck, yeah, I'll take the gig. So I thought, you know, in and out, three months, you know, is it really going to get made? Who knows? But, I'll, you know, I'll pay some bills. And that three months turned into a year of my life. Um, I mean, the, obviously, the project's very storied about all the pro problems with it, so I can go into that some of that vaguely. But uh, it was a long year. Um, they threw out my script entirely. Um, Doug went to rewrite it himself. His cousin rewrote it. Uh, they brought in uh, Tony Gilroy. Then he left, and they threw that out. Then they went to David Self, and then they went back to my script. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember <laughs> I, this is after four years. I'm like. Okay, uh, this is kind of yeah. cool. And then, uh, and I'll always be grateful to Tony Gilroy for being an amazing pro on so many levels because he, um, he, he, he did what, what writers have to do beyond writing and help you know, get his part of the, mm -hmm. the movie done. And uh, that's why I, I get to have a house. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. So between that and, and Agent X, you know, spy stories are definitely something that you seem to have a hand in. Is this, is this again, by chance? Or is there something that, that draws you to these sorts of stories? I know you, yeah. you speak Russian. You have a background in martial arts. Yes, yes. I, I was, uh, well, I was recruited, uh, if I didn't mention it, I was recruited fairly heavily by the CIA and the NSA at Middlebury, which was un not unusual in Middlebury. We were all, and it's not like they like knock on your door and slip something under anything, you know. And so they show up. Up. It's all very formal, you know, official. And uh, I, I decided not to do it. I decided to be a rock star, failed rock star instead. But um, uh, uh, that, of course, because of that world, and when I was in Moscow, I knew tons of spies and hung out quite a bit with black marketeers and, uh, you know, criminals. And often they were the same person, you know, diplomats, spies, black marketeers. So uh, as, Amer as an American, you, you're, um, and it's not because I was unique. It's just as an American who speaks Russian and, and, and you know, and especially when I went back to work for Billy Joel and things like that, you just became a magnet for those people. And so when it came time to get hired, that was one of the ways Doug sold me because uh, uh, Universal wanted Andrew Marlowe. They had to burn out a deal on him. And Andrew uh, just uh, just didn't get along with Doug. He didn't like, he just, you know, um, uh, I don't know why, ask him. Uh, but he said no. And so they went to me and that's that's how I got it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> From a from a craft standpoint, is there anything that you try and keep in mind when writing a, a spy story, especially when so much of it is dependent on obscuring information and, and misdirection? Is it something that that you find 
over time as you're working or I, I guess this is just a general process. Yeah, well, the overtime thing is like a great question because for, yeah. for me, beat sheets are miserable. I like, to, I like to do broad stroke things and just kind of write and find it and Hollywood doesn't function that way. They want to know what they're paying for. So I had to learn how to do beat sheets and find ways to stick to it and and I'll, I'll let you in one of my secret TV secrets right now is I actually do a rough draft of the pilot before I turn in an outline because uh, it's 12 days of your life and you get the bugs out and then everyone fucking thinks you're brilliant you know because you turn in the outline and then there's a script like two weeks later and it's, it's sparkling you know uh so i think about that um what 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 i mean what i would think about with spy things with with what i like about it, spy things is the duplicity and the lies so uh um every every spy and my kind of rule of thumb is in, in a spy show everyone should have a personal lie that they're trying to keep. And my, and my meta note on spy movies is they shouldn't be spy movies. They should be about something else. Uh, born, one reason why I got born was, uh, any, any of you guys who are fans of the book know the book had a Macbeth curse on it. People had tried to do it, it sucked. Um, it's, a, it's a sprawling mess. There's like five continents and uh, the girl's very weak. She's like this uh, upper middle class yuppie guy fantasy of a finance person. Um, and so, and it's really about him pursuing his identity, which in some ways isn't interesting. That kind of wears thin. That's more of a gimmick. That's more of a device than, a, than, um, than something that might be more entertaining. And, and I'm a romantic. So what I pitched was, okay, I said, let's throw the girl out. And let's take a guy who's willing to give up his future to find his past and a girl who's willing to give up her past to have a future. And let's put them in a car together. And, uh, and from then, everything kind of works. Uh, she, she doesn't want to get in the car. She, you know, he has to bribe her, and then they, you know, they, they're cross purposes. And when they fall in love, then there's real sacrifices for both of them. Yeah. You know, I, I, I just wanted to kind of just talking about source material in general. I know that between uh, the Bourne work and your work on Ripley Underground, you're 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 adapting well-known characters, you know, from from book series that that people are extremely familiar with. Um, were there any unique challenges in both those ways in sort of like maintaining a balance between, you know, fidelity to source material or what fans might want? And how do you make something that stands on its own? I mean, it sounds like you oh, yeah. went and, through that with porn identity, definitely. But, oh, and, and Ripley Underground as well. Yeah. I mean, adaptations, and I, ha I had the experience of being the first writer on Born and the last writer on Ripley. And you guys are going to find this when you do adaptations. Initially, everyone fell in love with something about the book. And um, the book probably isn't going to work as a movie. And as a writer, you're living with, with it day in and day out. So you're the first one to know you've got to kill your darling. You know, there's darlings that you're going to have to kill. They're the last one. Um, and, and, and acclimating them to giving up certain things is a process. Uh, as, a, as a young writer, I made the mistake I'm born by saying, okay, we can't have Carlos a Jackal. We can't have, there were too many villains. Um, and you immediately get pushback because you're like, you're tampering with a novel. And, and Doug, uh, Doug was friends with Lyman, uh, with um, uh, Ludlow. And so uh, it, for him, it was going to be really awkward when he flies his plane over to stay at the ranch in Montana or wherever. You know, and he, he messed up his book. The problem is, the, in that case, the book wasn't going to work and it needed to be radically compressed. And that was kind of my job through trial and error and many, 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 many outlines, uh, some of them which I didn't win. There were a lot of battles that uh, ironically were won by other writers off my outlines in the past, like getting rid of Carlos Ejacola as, as, as one of the villains. Um, 
But, uh, you know, and everyone, everyone on the creative team, they have to go through that process. They have to go through their mourning period. And you have to be patient as a writer. The great thing about Ripley Underground is by the time it got to me, everyone was freaking desperate. They are going to lose the rights to the book. They paid Westlake a fortune. Uh, Michael Tolkien, um, who at that time, I don't know if you guys know him, but huge writer at that time. Uh, he did The Player, and he, when they brought him the book, he was at the, you know, he was ungettable. He did a pass, and it just didn't, it doesn't, didn't work out. So they spent the, all this money, and they were down. This uh, Antoine de Clementonier, a big French producer, was down to thirty grand, and um, they needed basically either someone going up or go, coming down or going up as a writer. And so they pulled me out of the gutter, and they said, "You know, can you can you do this?" And so I came up uh, because they'd been through all these passes. They were open to anything. Just save our save the film. You know, we're we're it's triage time. So I came up with this again a romantic thing. Ripley's romantic in my version. He uh, he kills for a woman's heart, uh, and he does it with panache. And I made it a dark kind of violent comedy, and, um, uh, and it worked. Uh, and we still had to pitch it around and do proof of concept. So we, we basically knew we were going to be able to make the money before they paid me a dime. And, uh, and then it went through a number of directors. It, was, uh, it started with Taylor Hackford, then Doug Lyman. Uh, it ended up at Fox Searchlight. I was supposed to direct it for a while. I got screwed, but you know, who else is new? And then um, uh, Miguel Arteta and all the people who had deals at Fox Searchlight that they want to burn out their deals. And uh, finally, I ended up with Roger Spottiswood. And you haven't seen it here domestically because uh, the movie had uh, a domestic deal with a company. I think it was Destination, which went belly up right when the movie was finished. So you can see it in Europe, but you can't see it here. Well, I, I wanted to ask about that a bit because um, both Ripley Underground and, and a Texas Funeral as well, like yeah. like were financed primarily with European money. Is that correct. is yeah, that correct? Yeah. And so I was hoping you could just sort of you know sp speak to that and you know like the unique challenges or compromises you might have to make uh, in order to you know get a film made under those circumstances. Yeah, it's the cobble, the indie thing, the European indie thing. Here's the great thing: they're Europeans. So yeah, you're the you're the you're the creative force. You know they they don't they're my experience is they don't want to mess with you there. The, the bad news is they're, they're it's also territory. So you're 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 in the pre-sale world. So you have to get cast ahead of time. We used to be which used to be quite easy. You used to be able to get stars relatively simply when I started, and now money's easy and cast is hard. Um, uh, the the other thing is you're not you have no guild protection whatsoever. So uh, Texas Funeral, I got to make a Texas Funeral. I got my salary. It's played all over the world. It's, it's been on, you know, stars picked it up and paid a fortune for it. It's been, it was on Netflix for quite a while. It's doing well on Amazon, believe it or not, even now. I've, I've, basically, I've, 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 well, I've lost hundreds of thousands of dollars, and I have no way to get it because J&M, uh, the coda to that, that uh, Chase negative pickup thing, is Chase got wise and sued everybody. And um, the studios were big and rich, so they didn't care. J&M wasn't, and so they got wiped out. And uh, they took all their properties and put it in a shell company in Britain. So if I wanted to get that money, and this is quite common, I'd have to go to the British court system and just you know watch my golden years you know fade away. So um, so that's the that's the tricky thing with European companies. It's better on the TV side. Uh, there's there's ways to kind of get paid on that side. Um, Ripley Underground, they had tremendous problems because the, the Isle of Man, it was an Isle of Man deal. Isle of Man takes North American rights. There was dispute over the budget, uh, the true budget spent because that affected the incentive. Everything's got an incentive component. I'm sure you guys are familiar with that. And that held up the release of the movie in North America, which in turn gave the company that was going to distribute it time to fold. So, um, and Europeans are slow. And which is kind of great. You go over there, you'll you know you'll sit you'll sit in a cafe, and you're like, 
you'll have like a four-hour lunch and not discuss your movie, and you're just like, you know. Uh, but yeah, but but that said, highs and you know highs and lows. Yeah, it definitely seems like there's positives and negatives there. Um, I want to shift to television I a bit. Uh, I know you have a, a two pilot uh, blind deal with Warner Brothers. Correct. And uh, you know, just for the folks who might not be familiar with that term, I was hoping you could just kind of, you know, walk through the process of what that means, how you got into television, which is you know such a big growing trend mm. uh, from feature folks moving over into television and just kind of. Take uh, where you will. Great. Yeah. Uh, well, blind, a blind pilot. A blind deal is just what it says. They they basically they want to make sure that they've got horses to run in any given selling season. So they'll go to writers they like. And in this case, I, I knew these executives from pitching to them for years. And um, uh, the the network side, the broadcast side, wanted me lock wanted to lock me up for one. And then cable joined in. And and I think it's going to turn into a three pilot, a blind at this point. Knock on wood. Um, and the way it generally works is. In theory, you can kind of do anything you want that you all agree on. And in practice, they probably control some IPs, like a book or a failed pilot or some project that a big producer like John Wells or something wants wants to do. So they'll give you like a like a whole you know sampler, a little tapas bar of all these things, and you look at the one that you think, and they send you things that you know you know you'll be good at, and you look at the thing you like, and you kind of focus on that. Um, as far as the third position deal I may have, that was a book I brought to them that just caught fire, and so they they optioned it for me. Mm -hmm. So it could work that way. It, so did Agent X come out of that first deal, or was that sort of a separate? Uh, no, uh, yeah, in all deals, and th this is the theme of my life. And I think every with life, it's Agent X is because of three other deals that kind of right. happened. Uh, I, the reason I got into TV was, well, coming off of Wall Street, the one lesson I got uh, from Wall Street investors was diversify. You know, be in bonds, be in stocks, be in real estate, you know? So um, early in my career, and it's not on IMDb, I did a, uh, uh, I was part of the first, one of the first cable shows, Lazarus Man on TNT, ironically. Bob Urich, he got canceled, got cancer, so it got canceled because the TNT people were dicks at that time. And he, he got over it. It was really just really not nice. But I wrote one, I, I was kind of on staff there. I got to write a couple episodes. And so I learned the room. I learned TV, and suddenly I had a, a toe in TV. And then when I did uh, a Texas Funeral, Texas Funeral won that award at um, uh, the LA Film Festival. And uh, TV producers scour those looking for talent. So I was suddenly brought in there. And I met Greer Shepard and Mike Robin. And they're phenomenal. They're the, uh, they're the um, Nip Tuck people. And they do uh, Longmire. And they're just amazing people. So I said, OK, I better be safe. I'll write a pilot for them. Um, so I wrote a pilot which got greenlit at ABC, and it looked like I was going to direct it, but it was extremely expensive, much more expensive than they were willing to pay at that time. So it got shelved for, uh, for that reason, just on price. But now I was kind of in TV. So flash forward to role models uh, falling apart. Uh, it was called Big Brother originally. I was the first screenwriter. The first director was Luke Greenfield. We were at New Regency. We were greenlit at $18 million. Um, uh, my version, one guy, one kid, a little closer to Jerry Maguire. And uh, we decided 18 million with anyone starring in it. Like you and I, we could have shown up, movie, done. <laughs> Everyone in here could have been a star of that movie. I mean, New Regency was like, at that budget, no problem. Uh, but but uh, Luke had just done Girl Next Door and wanted to take a big shot. So we took a big shot at Tom Cruise. And I was thinking, okay, in 48 hours, we'll be making a movie with, uh, you know, at that time, Robert Downey, because <laughs> he was gettable at that time. Um, uh, and here's where things got complicated. Uh, Tom Cruise liked it. So Tom Cruise 
is thinking, is this too close to Jerry Maguire? I need some time to think. Uh, in the meantime, like uh, Luke is just high on Tom Cruise. It's just heroin going through his body. Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise. And um, six weeks later, he goes, too close to Jerry Maguire. I can't do it. Luke's in the big movie zone at this point, and Wedding Crashers comes out, which he had passed on, and makes $150 million, and I was due on another project. So he wanted to go back into development and do Two Guys, Two Kids, and I had to go do another project, and then he went back into development and ended up at Universal because New Regency lost uh, you know, confidence in it, and then he kind of left that project. God bless Paul Rudd. Uh, so I ended up with story credit, thank goodness, and it got made. All that being, that all happened. I got the taint, a writer taint, off a project not happening. It's very dangerous when you're at the green light point where it seems like it's a layup and then some reason the director wants to change the script. And now Luke is trying to redo that script for, you know, for, all, uh, for full disclosure. Uh, you look really bad as a writer. At that moment, the writers strike. Um, so uh, I had two feature deals evaporate. What I did have was one TV pilot that I had done while I diversify, cover my ass, and that TV pilot turned really well, turned out really well. So I came out of the writer's strike a TV writer uh, because uh, I, was, I, had, I was radioactive in features, uh, which has now changed, which is all good. But um, uh, uh, at the same time, what I learned during the writer's strike is that uh, feature writers have no power in town. There's, a, there's prestige, you, everyone, you know, you get to the right parties, but when it came down to brass tacks, who did the executives talk to? It was the showrunners who made things happen, and I just wasn't going to be a victim anymore. So uh, I started writing pilots, uh, which is precarious because you write one bad pilot, no one hires you again, and I started getting super close. Uh, everything got on the bubble or everything got in the small circle, and then I wrote something for Michael Wright at TNT, uh, Young White Earp, which got greenlit, but then they got cold feet on the Western aspect of it. He felt bad about that called me and said, basically, I have an assignment for you, assignment gig idea about the president having their own um, secret agent, kind of a national treasure thing. Uh, and I'm like, of course, you know, my, when the president of the company says, you know, you're going to make a pilot mm -hmm. uh, or you're going to be the guy blamed for it not happening. Um, I said, yeah, let's, let's make it the vice president because that's kind of funnier. You think the vice president doesn't do anything and, you know, let's make a campy TNT show. Uh, and he's like, great, this fits our brand. And so that's how I got into the Agent X business which became, uh, oh my God, this, this black hole of problems, but, uh, but worked out, worked out well for me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, are, are there any black hole problems you'd like to discuss or, yeah, is, it, or is it just an open sore? That, oh uh, no, no. Where to begin? Where to begin? Um, uh, like well, wherever you want to go, like, like anything that you expected would go your way and didn't, or, you know, uh, something that's a learning experience. I mean, you're, you're, you're going to be doing plenty of things, you know, uh, going forward. So, oh my gosh, you learn and, and, and invaluable. I mean, it's, a uh, uh, and, and the story has a happy ending, so it's all good. So, so don't don't worry. Thank God. Don't worry, kids. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, to, uh, to start off with, one, you have the mixed blessing of being the the baby of the head of the whole network. So you're going to get blamed. There's just there's if it doesn't happen, you're you're the fall guy. Uh, two, um, I had done a pilot, two pilots actually, with Beacon under Lori Zacks, who was a TV person, and Beacon's known as a, as a feature financing company. They decided that they wanted more hands-on, so they fired the TV person. So now I had feature people uh, trying to develop television for really for the first time. So that's that's a whole thing I'm not going to get into. But yes, yeah, so you're you're in the twilight zone there. Uh, then uh, on top of it, uh, we uh, Michael Wright's job suddenly became well. We we you it was an action show, but you the problem with action shows for television is that all the actors you want 
to play the male lead are doing features. They're not going to do a show. So, so you have to hang out on a female part. So suddenly the secondary part, which is the vice president, had to be expanded so that you could get a strong female lead. And that ended up being Sharon Stone, who committed within 24 hours, who's amazing. Hire her. I mean, she's, she's amazing. Um, but it's a mission show. It's a spy show. So you're already working against the structure of what it should be. Um, and then uh, it's a national treasure show, which pretty much demands in many ways a preamble where you, you would see a little historical thing where it sets it up, you know, where in my version would be George Washington with Al, uh, Nathan Hale making him the first Agent X, uh, which got nixed internally. So now you're throwing the audience and the pilot into a amazing confusion. They don't know what the tone of the show is. It's suddenly you're in an action show. It's by the co-writer of The Born Identity. So is this you know, is this a serious spy show or not? And then, then it gets even worse. Uh, so we're, we're um, the, and the script, because I was in the feature world, working with feature people, the script was 75 pages. Uh, and it should be, by the time you shoot, it should be 55. So you know there's gonna be, an, in features, everything's fixed in editing. The way features are developed, you, no one says no. Uh, so you get everybody's notes in a script. The script for Born Identity was 155, 160 pages. So the editing room is where everyone kind of dukes it out. You make the tough decisions, you kill your darlings. TV, you kill your darlings early on. That's why you give the power to the writer, because the writer knows where the, where the skeletons are uh, and should be plucked out. So no one was saying no. No one wanted to say no to the running train. So now we've got a 75-page script. We shoot it. It's fucking huge and long. But the good news is when we chop it down, even super long, um, our, our people, especially our star, test really well. So we've got a toe. We've got a toe into the world. We're not going to be, we're, we may get on the air. So Michael Wright says you can go back and do a reshoot. He says you can do a reshoot right when they they're, they're deciding if they're going to hire him again. His job's in limbo. They're thinking about rebranding TNT, making it kind of dark and HBO-ish. Uh, so now we're doing a reshoot and we don't know what they want. And then he kind of goes, and his, his boss, who was uh, taking over, was David Levy, who wanted something else. And then we're finishing up that, and the day we deliver, uh, Kevin Riley takes over. And Kevin Riley wants to turn a TNT into FX and hates old TNT, uh, which is very, if you guys don't know the brand, TNT is, they call it CBS Light. So it's, it's popcorny light shows, uh, very much comfort food. And Kevin's vision, and I love Kevin, by the way, he's giving me work, but Kevin's vision was Animal Kingdom. You know, super, super dark stuff. So we knew we were DOA eventually, but they had nothing to replace us with. So we were supposed to be put, uh, so now we have the pilot, by the way, which is this weird amalgam of three reshoots. Uh, and, I, and, and that gets back to skin art. What do you do when you have to change the story and make things work? And so I had to rewrite things and put in subplots and somehow make it all fit into 42 minutes. Uh, and so for me, the pilot, which I don't like, is a biblical miracle mm -hmm. that you can watch it. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end, and there's characters. And people actually came back after watching it. So I was thrilled with that. Um, and uh, so anyway, yeah. So, so there we're at, you know, and, and we knew we weren't going to get promotion. And we were supposed to be after the last ship, which is a big show. They didn't put us there. Instead, they put us after the librarians. Not a great fit. Opposite football and Walking Dead with no promotion. Um, so, so we think, okay, we're, we're really screwed. But then little miracles happen. Um, and here, here's the great thing about what we do for a living. If you, if you do your job right and you know your audience, you, you can kind of come back. So uh, the good news is as, as, as you get deeper into a season, the showrunner gets more and more power. Because it becomes, again, like, you know, all hands on deck, triage. You know, no one has time to argue. 
so I was kind of able to course correct the show in, in my own humble opinion. And by the middle, I remember um, the, the middle of the season looking at the live plus three and uh, the numbers went at 40% just in one week from that one thing. And from then on, our, our live plus three and our live plus seven, we could never really crack uh, the same day. You know, that was always our 1.2. But our numbers went up and up and up. So we had the illusion we were going to be picked up. Uh, but now we got canceled with all seven other shows. They just, it was a bloodbath. It was like a bloody Monday and they just got rid of, um, but it worked out great because then I get this, this deal of Warner Brothers and uh, I can't tell you what the projects are, but they're like, you know, two of the three are Emmy projects. So, so I'm really thrilled. We'll be looking out for them. Yeah. Um, so, you know, again, as a future writer, you you have limited power. You're working in a very solitary way. You're a total bitch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and and you make this transition to to being a showrunner. Uh, yeah. You know, you're you're the captain of this ship. You have you have a staff of writers. Did you find that? Yeah. yeah that, that, that this was good all across the board. Where were there being a showrunner? Is, it's hours aside, and the hours are horrible. I had two two days off in eight months. Uh, I mean, it's crazy, crazy hours. That said. It's the power is amazing. It's it's even more power. Oh, it's it's like Nietzsche on steroids. You're like because you uh, even beyond um, even beyond independent films. In independent films, you have tons of power if you're working with the right people. At the end of the day, you're not in control of the budget in independent films. As, as a showrunner, literally everything goes through you. I mean, every uh, uh, from uh, the, from and I worked with great directors, so I don't want to diminish their work, but. Most of the decisions that a director were making in pre-production and post-production are made by the showrunner. And then you show up and you'll go, oh, I want that, I want, I want that. And as long as you say it to the director, then it gets done. They have to like do it. You can talk to the actress directly. You're not supposed to, but you do. So you, uh, that comes responsibility. You're, you're blamed for everything. So that's the downside. But you get to see the budget. And, and for that reason, you can put the money really where it matters. Um, you're uh, suddenly people return your phone calls because you're um, you're employing 200 people on a weekly basis and you're employing 20 to 30 actors. So every agency knows you. They take your calls. You're uh, you guys are familiar with packaging fees for the agencies, the way they work. Uh, so so ba basically, uh, CAA. Um, uh, in my case, CAA, when they package a show and they package everything a client does, they get a piece of the licensing fee of every single show. I think it's like uh, two and a half to four percent. I can't two to three percent of uh, of uh, license would be like one point five million. So you guys do the math. Suddenly, they're making millions uh, or off of uh, every showrunner. So I became like, I think I did the math, the equivalent of a seven million dollar a year client to them. So that brings respect you know you you get things done it helps uh, I, I'm quite involved in features and indies now so people will answer my phone calls over there because I'm helping the agency uh, pay their bills you know? mm -hmm. yeah. and so in addition to the TV work I know you're you're looking to do more independent features Correct, yeah. you're gonna go back to directing is there yeah I love indies and, oh. I, and I've tried multiple times I, I after a Texas funeral I had like two years where I was the next Alfonso Cuaron so I had this I had this deal at um, uh, Sony I was supposed to I have this one project called uh, I'll t even tell you the name of it the remarkable film rise of Emperor Norton which is based on this true Don Quixote character named Joshua Norton who this this guy rich guy lost his fortune went insane in San Francisco in, in the 1860s and um, uh, looked around at all the misery around him, all the poverty, war going on, said, I'm going to fix it. Mm -hmm. So he goes into a little uh, thrift shop, creates a uniform for himself, marches into the newspaper, and puts down a, a proclamation saying, I'm Emperor of the United States. And, um, and they print it. 
Mm-hmm. And from then he becomes Emperor of the United States. It's absolutely true. Well, Abraham Lincoln was a fan of his. And a very young, insecure newspaper reporter named Mark Twain, Samuel Clemens at that time, uh, was one of the people he hung out with. So it's like a Fisher King, Don Quixote story. So uh, I was pursued by, you guys probably don't know these names, but Milos Forman, Gus Van Sant, you might know. Uh, a, lot, a lot of people wanted to buy it. I said, no, I want to direct it. I did a Texas funeral. Um, we were supposed to do it at Sony. Kevin Klein was going to play Norton. That uh, didn't work out because we couldn't find a Mark Twain. Uh, then I was supposed to do it again with Sir Ben Kingsley like four years later. But as an indie uh, at Arclight, Arclight chopped my budget down $6 million at the last minute. Uh, so then you have... Um, well, if I give you guys any tips tonight, one of them would be always decide if you're doing something for commercial reasons or art or love. Uh, commercial reasons, get it done. Get do get your goal right. If you when you mix the two, it just breaks your fucking heart. So when it came to art, I didn't. I would rather keep the movie in my head perfect than than do it incorrectly just to get pay, a paycheck for an independent movie. So I sat on it. It keeps coming back. Uh, and then I have two smaller indie thrillers uh, where I'm periodically offered five million to do. But I'm a I'm a suburban dad now. So I'm definitely choosing uh, supporting my family over doing art at this point. But but my hope with a cable show is that I can have half the year to go do a little bit of art and do some cable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and so, you know, given the breadth of your career so far, is there is there any anything you really want to remark on as far as like the changes you witnessed, things that you miss, things that you're hopeful about, uh, yeah. you know, like well, it's okay if there's no answer. But. Well, I'll tell, you, I'll, t- I'll tell you what I miss and I'll tell you what I'm really jealous about. Yeah. Is, uh, uh, what, for you guys, you young guys, uh, what I miss is the glamour of the industry. Because w- when you first came in, everybody met movie stars. They they meet up in t- coming talent. You'd have you know you'd uh, Selma Hayek wants to have drinks with you. Oh, and there's uh, what's her name? Um, um, her friend, uh, the Spanish actress. Uh, yeah, Mapella Cruz. She's waiting there too. Oh hi, we heard you're a good writer. You know, so you're like this. I'm I'm liking this. You know, this is really cool. Um, and then most most of your meetings would be over lunch because there were lavish expense accounts. Corporate America had not infiltrated the studios, and it bred a sense of like like elitism in the best sense of glamour and elitism. You'd be you'd be having yeah, everything was by a pool or in someone's mansion. Or my my first uh, star I attached was Diane Ladd, who is a big star at that time. You guys probably don't know her. And we did the meeting on her bed. We we went into a living room. She's like, you know, we're renovating. Let's lie on our bed. So I'm like. Going this, you know, talking art, you know, uh, with Diane Ladd, and so, so you know, those were that was just wonderful, you know, wonderful. The, the the what I'm really jealous about is the barrier to entry was horrific. Like getting a script out, you had to uh, you had to Xerox the script and pay for postage, and that was ten dollars, and I didn't have ten dollars. And uh, and when I was just breaking in, I had a rule where I would send a copy of my script to somebody every day. So I'd read Variety, I'd get a name of somebody who just got their wings as an executive, and I'd send it. And uh, and uh, uh, I sent Willem Dafoe a bottle of vodka once a week for for like a year until finally I got a response. I mean, but out of those, and I ended up sending like over a thousand scripts over three years. I ended up getting two meetings. And I took those two meetings, I got on a plane for those two meetings, and those two meetings led to, one of them was John Landgraf, and um, uh, they just led to a career, you know? Great. Is there, is there one piece of advice you wish you had been told 
like at the beginning that that yeah. you learned later on and you feel like you know if i could go back in a time machine oh and whisper this to myself I, I have like 10 you you you're good <laughs> enough to forward your uh he's good enough to forward the question so i wouldn't seem like a total a total dolt uh so i took i took a quality 30 seconds and uh wrote down things these are things just off the bop, bop, uh-huh. top of my head uh you guys are mostly writers or are there directors here or Mostly writers. Okay, uh, don't send out a script until you've sent out another one. Until you've written another one first, then go back to that first script. Uh, big mistake: sending out things before they're ready. Uh, fire your agent when things are good. Uh, you, you know, you'll read Variety or Deadline, and you'll go, "So and so fired their agent, but they just got that big movie. What assholes!" The reason why they're firing their agent is because they didn't have any work for a long time. They finally got that gig, um, and you can't jump to an agency. And I wish I'd learned this early in my career. Huge mistake. You can't jump to an agency when you're not worth anything. So you've got to make that hard decision. Of uh, now, I've been lucky. I, I love my TV agent, and that's why I've stayed at CAA for so long. I mean, he's phenomenal, and I love my manager as well. Uh, and my new, my my new, uh, there you go, feature agent. I love quite well, Matt Martin. Um, uh, okay, uh, indie people. Anyone here with indie tips? You know, uh, get everything in writing when you when or the, anything. Whenever you whenever you develop with producers, you know, I've got an idea or whatever, uh, whether it's for features or indies. Uh, one map out that you get it back. If it's a shopping agreement, write a list of exactly who they can send it to. Everything should have an expiration on it. You give them two months, three months. You get to go back to the buyer. They can't come back. Uh, I've had this a million times where there's only so many buyers. So you go out to a buyer, nothing will happen. You go back to that buyer when there's a new executive, and suddenly you've got all these fucking parasite producers who are trying to glom onto your thing. Get it in writing, even if you're friends. Everyone's worried when they're a young writer of pissing people off. And, you know, no, you're going you're gonna to seem like you're not an idiot, you know? So get in down and micromanage it, what that means. And you control it. You get the rights. If they think they should share story rights, negotiate that up front. And say, if you don't like it later on, we renegotiate. Uh, become a hyphenate. Uh, so I haven't had a day job in 20 years. I'm feeling pretty smug about that. Uh, because you want to be certain things at certain times in your life. You, want to, you don't want to be a writer your whole life, or by the time you get to my age, you're not going to be working. Uh, writers stop working really about 45. So you got to become, the great thing about TV is writers naturally segue into becoming producers. So that's how you get to be a hyphen or be a director or whatever. Um, uh, but writing is not a career in and of itself forever. Um, uh, okay, yeah, create a story bank. I wish I had done this earlier. Create a story bank, an image bank, a website bank, a dialogue bank, a book adaptation bank, if you're an action person, an action scene bank, so that when you're driving down the road and you go, oh, wouldn't it be cool if an ice cream truck you know, uh, ran over that? Or uh, you know, what was the dopey line I came up with today? She's a food stylist for cannibals. I have no idea you know, when I will use that, some romantic comedy down the road that's going to, but you, you don't want to ever be sitting at your computer trying to come up with shit. You want it already kind of primed there. Um, let's see. Create and acquire your own IPs. This is a big one. I'm writing a novel right now. I wish someone had told me this because you think it takes so long to write, you're going to be paid so a little bit. IPs rule the roost. And you're not going to get, I, even me, I, I, I was up for only one IP, big IP, comic book IP this year. Uh, be the, create the IP, then you can be the person who writes it. Uh, or, or option books. Sheldon Turner, who's a friend of mine, uh, did up in the air got an Oscar nomination for it. He's brilliant at this. He, he finds books no one has seen but are kind of popular. He options them for a certain amount of money, very low, adapts them on spec, and, and sells them quite, quite handily. Um, decide whether you're doing something for art or conver- commerce, write every day. 
Uh, never say no, say maybe. Uh, so I, I, I had an opportunity when Rob Reiner wanted my script, I had an opportunity to meet Rob Reiner if I had said, okay, you can direct this, I'll, get, I'll sell my baby. Had I said maybe, they probably would have put me in a room with him so that he could Im impress me. And then I would have met Rob Reiner and he would have given me a job. And, and I ended up writing for Castle Rock years later, uh, partially because of this script. I could have been writing for Castle Rock earlier. And, I, uh, so, and, and maybe is nice because maybe they're right. So you leave the room. Uh, maybe that idea that they had that was so stupid, maybe that leads to, there are no bad notes. Anytime someone gives you a note, there's something wrong with your script. And it's not what they say, maybe, but there's something wrong and you need to revisit it. Uh, you need to find that third door, I call it. Um, let the best idea win. Uh, uh, yeah, and do all the contests. And the last thing for people breaking in is only send out your best work. Only your very, very best work if you're breaking in. Yeah, it worked for you, right? Well, yeah, you know, like... Best foot forward. Yeah, <laughs> it yeah. seems to be a decent rule of thumb. Um, so the the last question I had is, uh, what's the one question you're never asked but always wished? But I feel, I, I'm sure it's out in the crowd somewhere. Oh, so, yeah, so maybe yeah. we could just turn it over to anyone else if anybody out there has a, a question. Uh, you, sir? Okay. Oh. I'm so sorry. This is so pro. I mean, yeah. We need to have Um, can you give us an idea of uh, the age you were when all those different things happened that you were telling? Oh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and look, to, to those of you with a few years, don't panic. There's always exceptions. Uh, I have a great friend, uh, Gary Lennon. Uh, Google him. He's got an amazing career. And uh, certain things happen at certain times. Uh, yeah, for me, and, and, and I my huge screw up was not moving to LA. What, you guys have already, you're already ahead of me. I didn't move to LA till I was 30. But um, yeah, so uh, 22, failed rock, rock guy on Wall Street. 23, NYU, that stretches out, you know, for until 30. But I'm at, uh, at the age of 23, I'm already writing feature scripts. Uh, th uh, skin art was 30. It's also under the title Liebstad, if you look it up foreign, which is actually a better cut. That was when I was 30, which at that time was kind of a crucial age because that's when independent guys get movies made. So I wanted to be indie guy at that time. I never wanted to be a feature a Hollywood guy. Never thought I would move to LA. Um, but then the independent industry evaporated literally overnight. You had like people like Island and MCG, and you could be that really cool Jim Jarmusch guy who makes one two million dollar movie every other year. Teach at Columbia, and you'd still be able to party in the Hamptons on the weekend. And it was it was an amazing, amazing. Your kids would get into private schools with scholarships. It was you could you could whip it, and that just went away. So that's why I went to LA on purpose to become of value to the studio system so they would let me do a Texas funeral. So then a Texas funeral, uh, I got made at 34, 35-ish. Uh, and then Bourne came in my late 30s and got, uh, Bourne, well, Bourne came and I started writing it when I was around 35, 36. And then they made it like when I was 38, you know, and released it the next year. And then, which is all cool, because I made that dreaded 40. Because you want 40, ideally 40, you have a big feature credit. Um, all the, I know, I don't want to disparage anybody here. Don't, don't, you know, don't, don't fret. You've got plenty of time. Write something brilliant, and uh, no one will, no one can deny an awesome script. And then, uh, and then, and then it took me, you know, 10 years basically to get a TV show made. Off and on, um, because keep in mind there was a strike in there, and there was uh, there was role models in between, in that process. Yeah. Thank you for coming.
coming today and sharing your wisdom. Um, I have two questions. One, um, would you consider yourself an introvert or an extrovert? Yeah. And can you talk a little bit about building relationships and pitching in the industry? Uh, yeah, and they're so tied to each other. Uh, I'm a huge introvert, and uh, uh, born, born in Texas, obviously, but raised in the Midwest. And what I'm doing right now, I could never have done uh, when I first came to the city, where uh, talking about myself or giving my resume or anything that remotely sounded like self-promotion was mortifying and dirty, very dirty. And only awesome, sleazy, uh, terribly sleazy people people did it. And then I didn't eat. So then I started, and my movie wasn't getting made. And, uh, and then it came down to how much do I love a Texas funeral? I'm going to get, I'm going to get 10 minutes of this person's time Total, I have to convince them, a stranger, to give me this money to make this arty uh, movie that no one, that's not commercial. So then, uh, so then you, you learn to brag, and, and it's not, uh, or promote, or whatever, to convey who you are and what you're selling. So give them a handle of where they can place you. Because they're looking at you, and they're not worried about whether or not you're an, uh, you're an indiscreet Midwestern kid who is you know, poorly raised or whatever. They're thinking, how can I exploit this person? Oh, I've got this thing. I've got this spy thing. Where can I put them? So you're feeding them. You're feeding them you know, food. Um, networking kind of works at two levels. It's... At the, at the beginning level, you network with everybody. People who don't have power, like the IFP. We go to the IFP, and with people without power, networking with people without power, you know, just you know, just Lotus, 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 Kool Aid, Kool Aid, Kool Aid. You know, we're going to do these amazing movies, and you'll meet hundreds of people. You'll have hundreds of drinks, and one or two of those people will kind of get a job. The good news is, by being NYU people, you, the odds that some of those people might get a job is higher. Not like the USC people. We need to work on that. Um, and then you you have to keep up with those people. And I don't. If I had if I had a dime for every amazing connection, um, well, like when I was I was in arbitration against Paul Rudd on uh, role models, and he'd been attached to his Texas funeral. And we used to talk all the time. Well, not all the time, like four or five times. But that's a lot in Hollywood. That's four or five times. Uh, and I didn't have his number. Why? Because I'm such an introvert that I'm just and I don't I like I hated the parties. So I first came here and I spent but six months not doing the parties, and um, and the parties don't exist the way they did back then. So don't worry, you're not missing too much. But um, but finally, and and the parties always work this always work the same way. So I want to be a D boy or D girl, or there'd be an assistant agent who would just like your work, and they'd call you up and say, show up here. And I finally just realized, okay, I love this movie. I'm going to get this movie made, and I'm willing to put my ego aside, and I'm going to do it. And I went to I shit you not, probably three events a week. And um, and and learn to be the person no one hates, because when you go to those parties, no one wants to hang out with the person with no power. Everyone's looking for the bigger the person they want to network with. They came there to meet this person, this person, and then this 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 NYU guy comes up to them. It's their nightmare, right? So you you find a way to be there for ten seconds and get out. Ten seconds and get out. So you go to the back of the room and you work your way forward, and then you exit. So you don't have that uh, that uncomfortable moment where you networked with someone who didn't want to network with you, and then you have to pass them, you know, later on and they're like cringing are they going to try to network with me again you know um, and, and, and then when you actually do something substantial well, and then magic happens when you do that because then you take a meeting with someone who, saw, who they can't place you they saw you at like a billion different places and now you're in their office and you wrote a good script uh, but you're nobody and yet they saw you a million places so you must be somebody so that can lead to uh, work Especially if you have more than one idea. You always walk into a meeting with more than one idea, more than one way to pivot. That's why you have a story bank. 
That's why you break things down. Uh, and when you do a story bank, uh, I would suggest uh, eschewing B sheet, beat sheets for scri uh, scriptments. Scriptments are, are uh, uh, well, you know what scriptment is, obviously. Uh, it's where you have the, the slug line and you did description but no dialogue, and it's really brief. It's like a, it's a, it's a cross between an outline and a script. And the beauty of that is you'll get more done, and when you finally have time to actually write it, it feels like you started the script. And it's what you do. It's what you do when you become an assignment writer, and you're working eight hours a day, and you're burnt out, but you have the spec you should be writing. You can take ten minutes and just like start adding beats, and and before you know it, a year later, you've written a rough draft of a script. Uh, so anyway, those seeds suddenly, years after years, like Damien Jones, that was that was three years of us seeing each other, him knowing the script, him building his career. We all kind of went up together. And, um, and then it gets scary at my age because uh, uh, the people I network now are people I knew forever. They're heads of the company. And if they get fired, I just lost a buyer. I'm, gonna have to, I'm going to have to rebuild that connection from scratch. So fortunately, my enemies have been fired, which is so, I can't tell you how great that is. Uh, there, there, there's this one woman, and I'm going to call her a bitch, I'm sorry, but who, who killed three of my move, three moves, me directing three times, and she just lost her job and she's never coming back. So, so the witch is dead. So, uh, so th she was the last one. Um, uh, erase that on the tape. Uh, no, in case she comes back. Uh, but, but, but that's, that's, that's how it works. Long, long explanation for a short question. Yeah. Right there in the third row. You, sir? I guess I'm in the third row. Oh. You said something kind of odd or interesting about Billy Joel and the shady characters in Russia. Oh, yeah, Can you yeah. Revisit that. <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's a, a, well, when you go over there and you work, as an American, you're immediately, uh, the, you know, there were a total of, uh, I think, something like 2,000 Americans at the embassy, and then there's a, like another 200 students, I think, undergraduate and graduate level. So you stand out like a sore thumb. So you meet, you're immediately attracted to the black market people find you. The black market people are a part of the underground rock and roll scene, and they're part of everything cool over there. The criminals control all the cool stuff that you want to see, you know, the secret performances and all that. So then, uh, so I met a bunch of those people, and I helped run icons. I never, I never sold icons, but I helped people get icons because uh, trains would come in from Poland, so you could like smuggle them out that way, and the Polish people would send them to you, and vice versa. So there, there's a whole, and I and I and I smuggled out Refusnik letters, and I smuggled out a videotape of the Nagorno-Karabakh um, massacre, which someone gave to me, and found out that ABC got it like the day before I arrived. So I'm like, great, I fucking risked my life, you know, to for this stupid thing. Um, so then, so then I was hired by the Billy Joel. Uh, the this company called Citizens Exchange Council, which handled all programs between the US, United States and um, the Soviet Union at that time. It was basically quasi-diplomatic and run by Middlebury people because there's a Middlebury mafia for Russian. So they went to me because they knew I knew these people. So they said, Billy Joel needs a music liaison for his press to act as a person, both to keep the press, keep the press out of trouble, and because um, I knew I knew some things to do, and um, and to hook them up with underground rock and rollers. So the first thing I did when I went over there is I went to the black marketeers, who are often diplomat kids, you know, because they had the connections. They were traveling back and forth. They could launder the uh, the money. Uh, there was a big exchange for American currency. You got five to one. And so I met all the underground rockers, which was really cool, and uh, hung out with them. And they're, um, they're like professors. You know, they're like political dissidents. And I mean, it's really cool. Anyway, so that that's uh, and I just kept going back and meeting more of those people. Did you find out what who Oswald really was? 
Who Oswald? Yeah. Well, oh, you mean? Well, Oswald. Interestingly enough, uh, I, I'm I'm two two steps away from the Kennedy assassination. I uh, was working for Peter Miller, the the true crime guy. You know, the true yeah, who I mentioned before. <laughs> he gets this call from this Cuban guy who wants to write young adult novels. Who he meets and says he needs someone to edit his books. And so he, uh, I worked with him by phone, and we had this like phone relationship. It was. Uh, you know, it was uh, kind of romantic in retrospect. And um, he was a, a, a Cuban emigre who was an aristocrat. Hemingway was a friend of the family. And we start talking, talking, and he tells me a little bit too much. And he was part of that whole thing in New Orleans. And this is before the JFK came out. So he, he mentioned Oswald would come in. They would bring him into the, uh, the communist... Uh, you know, the communists had their headquarters in one in the basement of the lower part of a building, and the CIA ran it from above, and he'd go up some back stairs. And I thought he was batshit crazy. I mean, I thought this was all a lie. This was so ridiculous. And then uh, the movie comes out, and I, I was terrified. I told him he should write about it, and there was this, like, silence on the phone, and he, and he said they would kill me, and he said, if you tell anyone, they'll kill me. Right. Just so I, I just killed him. <laughs> right now. There we go. Right. I killed the man. Uh, yeah. You know... Just young adult novels was what he. <laughs> young adult novels. He, he wanted to do young. But they exactly. were like veiled confessions. <laughs> it's a, it was about this Russian woman yeah. who hooks up with an American right. and MK Ultra and all that. Kind of. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, all the way over there. Yes, love, loving all these stories. But I was also hoping to hear some more insights into the spy genre and other thoughts you might have and you could share with us. Yeah, it's a. It's well, well one. Um, my real thumb, as I mentioned, was hanging on a uh, personal kind of thing, create a lie. It's if you if you do a modern spy thing, which we learned on Agent X, is your audience is incredibly savvy, incredibly savvy. So we had one cell phone technology thing we referred to that was four months old, obsolete. The way things were pinging, you know, to find someone's location, we got lambasted. I mean, you just you can't you you got to do do uh, your deep research. Um, I, I th my my personal. Th uh, thing is get a book uh, because it's hard a lot of the best spy stories are period and period's incredibly hard to sell so if, I would try to if, you, if you're interested in that world I would try to find a book or a true story and go to those uh, go to those people um, I, I think uh, you know there's there's a movement towards grounded characters so I think uh, if you look like the man just speaking from market trends uh, agent X had a very uh, TNT niche audience. We were never really going to be more than three million people because we were popcorn. The uh, you look how how the man from Uncle had some real trouble. Uh, the the Kingsman did okay, but that was really kind of edgy and cool and stylish. So uh, I, I would veer if you if you're writing something super light and popcorny. I would I would think in terms of more gra grounded kind of thing as well. Um, did you find um, the sort of hidden history conspiracy theory aspect of Agent X helped you guys and in terms of like you know hidden history seem to have so much purchase yeah uh, amongst people in general and and also I'm thinking of National Treasure, The X-Files, just uh, yeah, in works yeah, of fiction. Yeah, and in one, it, it gives you something you can, can spool out and keep the, keep the story going and keep the paycheck going. Because Agent uh, X was commerce. That was a deal I did for commerce. So you want to run for fucking ever. You know, that's, your, that's an annuity. You know, so, you, uh, so the mythology helps you there. From a creative standpoint, it's great because it gives you, it gives you license to be ridiculous. Um, we, we could have tunnels... 
ironically, everything in Agent X, believe it or not, uh, is based on some fact. But you know, we could have all these tunnels that we said were built in the revolution. You know, of course, the revolution wasn't there at that time. You know, but 18 World of 18 War of 1812, they started building these things, and we could uh, we could pull people out of the closet. Like uh, we have X Agent X, and I'm not spoiling anything because you guys probably won't watch the show. But we could have our super villain uh, be an X Agent X. Right, and, and, and I guess the idea of Agent X is that there is a long forgotten article in the constitution oh, yeah, yeah, that yes. gives the vice president powers to deputize an anonymous agent to do whatever had, in times of peril that's right so yeah. uh, so we had some good dick cheney jokes we had all, all of the above um and, and yeah and that was you know and that was something with very much a tnt concept because tnt's uh uh is a well, the pejorative term is a flyover uh, you know catered to flyover states so it's patriotic so we, you have a super patriotic show that's been written by a bunch of uh, and starred in of Sharon Stone by a bunch of Hollywood left-wing uh, liberals so who happen to be patriots. So we kind of found ways to be nudge-nudge, wink-wink, and yet have people still do the right thing, which was fun. And I knew the show was going to be canceled, probably. So I, what was really cool was I could destroy the whole mythology. So as you watch the show, uh, the next agent X turns out to be the main villain. The Constitution is stolen. The tunnels, their, their command center is burned. You know, by the time you get to the end, there's nothing. There's in the final episode, you know, and and, and that final episode, our, our agent quits. You know, and so it, 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 there was something very cathartic about um, doing that. Uh, and knowing that there's, uh, I had big plans for season two if that happened. You can, you can, that would have been fun too to rebuild it. Yeah. Yeah, just on the subject of um, what you were talking about with building spy stories, it felt like Bourne had a had its own place in the world. Yeah. You know, it had its spot on your shelf because we know what Ethan Hunt does, we know what James Bond does, but it felt different. Can you talk about that? Like, oh, yeah. some of it is the filmmakers, but at, on your level when you were writing it. Yeah, and that was that was an exploration because we uh, Doug Lyman's very exp explore exploratory, and the way you know you you investigate you try very many different types of uh, approaches to it. Uh, the first draft was like a John Woo version. You know, it was like really shoot him up. Uh, and that was fun to write, but uh, it, yeah, I don't think it was a good script. So when we were doing the autopsy on it, uh, we were all we were just seeing a, a Ali uh, Ali Shermer, who's amazing, who's a producer on her own now, who is a Universal executive and pulled this thing through the tundra with her teeth. We're sitting at a table, and what movies did we love? And we love seventies movies, and I watched quite a few, and um, and came from art film, so obviously my heart was more in that kind of world. And uh, and Doug's an auteur type; he's the guy he picks up the camera, he does the handheld. The firstborn does not look like uh, the Paul Greengrass, the shaky handheld. I mean, that's but Doug's handheld is much more a much more studied kind of seventies version of that. Um, so so we said, okay, let's retool, let's rethink this whole thing. We'll do it as a seventies version. Um, and I had my one-liner about the girl, you know, uh, she, her willing to give up her, you know, give up her uh, past to have her future and his, him the opposite. And then things start suggesting themselves. And these are 70s kind of scenes. They're, they're in the car. There's tension. And then there's this moment I'm sitting there and I'm going, oh, my God, this is three days of the condor. I'm stealing from three days of the condor. So I went home and I more aggressively stole from three days of the condor. <laughs> and... We that's what we made. We remade Three Days of the Condor with some you know cool slides. At the same time, a big 
I'm, this is something I'm very proud of. Um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a martial artist. I've got a couple black belts. One reason why the CIA and the NSA wanted me. Um, one thing I'd always hated in American movies was that the, the, the fighting looked horrible. This is hook punches, haymakers. They even missed their faces. You know, these aren't like real world techniques. It's really horrible, horrible. And so I showed Doug. Uh, I, tra I train in a, 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 a very lean and mean system called traditional Wing Chun. Um, my, my sifu was Robert Downey's fight choreographer. He was uh, he's my he was my sifu before he was Robert Downey's sifu, for the record. Um, but uh, so I just kept so I started showing, showing showing him some things that we would do in our system, and he and he got excited about it. And so they brought in um, a Kali guy who's very similar to Wing Chun, and that's why you see that that system of fighting very lean, very mean. There's two for ones, uh, where you, they're blocks and strikes at the same time. A lot of uh, a lot of true martial arts is improvised objects, which now is very common. You see it in all movies, but when Born came out, that was very rare. Uh, to see someone take a pen or a newspaper and you know and then kill someone in, in a delightful way, so uh, so I'm proud of that. You know, yeah. In the back. Thank you. Hi. Um, oh gosh, I just forgot my question. Oh, so you had mentioned earlier, you know, doing it for art or doing it for commercial. So currently, it seems like there's a lot of spy stuff going on. CNN even has some documentaries going oh, yeah. on about stuff. Oh, I love that declassified. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Do you feel like uh, currently it's a good time where you you feel like that particular genre is going to continue to grow over the next it's five, spy, ten years? Spies are always great because you you get your action built in. Uh, as a writer, it's the gift that keeps giving because everyone's lying, as I mentioned. There's everyone's hiding things, and you can cloak it. You can cloak it. I cloaked it on love story, but you can cloak it on a father reuniting with his son. You can take any personal story, take the fucked up thing in your life right, with someone you love or care about. There's a spy version of that. That that will be actually commercial. You know, take that secret script that all your friends go, oh, that's brilliant, and you know, it's brilliant, but they but they think it's too indulgent. You've written a secret movie, re envision that as a spy thing, and then all you have to do is put in the the twists and turns. But the twists and turns adhere to this pretty much the same twists and turns as uh, any other action movie. There's going to be a second act reversal. There's going to be you know that big first act you know a launching of the thing, uh, and the first act keeps getting shorter and shorter. I'm sure you guys have noticed that. In my day, you could go to like page 33, no one for freak out. Now it's like by 22, people are you know, grinding their teeth, you know. Um, and and, uh, and, 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 and the, the Joseph Campbell 12-step structure, which I'm sure you guys know, holds up for spy stuff too. So if, you, if you're finding that you don't have enough plot, um, this is true of action in general, but if you're finding if you don't have enough plot, move up your big action stuff to the end of the second act and then have them return with the prize to where they were and then have the the you know the bad guy show up again and then they have to be their 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 metamorphosed self defeating them um, cuz you you don't have to stick to that whole uh, you you wait for the big big set piece where you get the thing in the middle of the third act you know right here a little wonky but that's it, yeah how do you know when what you've written is ready to be sent out. How do you know when it's ready to be read by someone oh, yeah. who, who has some value other than like your close circle? Of you, you gotta, you gotta wait till I die and marry my wife. That's uh, that's the top thing. Um, I, I was lucky. I married uh, Terry Malick was a fan of my movie and offered me one of his movies. My wife ran his company, and so she was a very experienced executive. So, uh, so find someone who is experienced um, in the film industry, preferably who you can trust. Because the, the, here, here's the flaw of showing it to your friends. Your, your friends are actually artists. So um, they, they, if you're writing to sell, 
there's two different worlds. There's art and commerce, right? Right, right? If it's art, you don't, even if your friends say it's shit, you stick with it, you get it made, because they're wrong. Uh, but but if, if you're trying to get a broader audience, your friends are probably watching those cool 70s movies. You know, they probably just watched the last, you know, they're not dead center in the room. And one thing I did learn the hard way is on a Hollywood movie, if there's 10 people in a room and one person doesn't get it, you failed. That's not a commercial movie. Ten people have to understand why the hero didn't pick up the gun on the speeding boat when they when they had his you know his daughter on the next boat. Um, so 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 you so you send it so you show it to that person. Here's the important thing: never show that to them again. They can never reread a script. They will never. They're tainted. They they know what's coming. They'll never give you. They'll, and they'll never appreciate it. You could do a brilliant rewrite. And they already know the best part of the script. So you have to kind of space them out. Um, the good news is as you get deeper into the industry, uh, you, you, you have friends like uh, Ewell Case, uh, who, who we're, we're in a group called Safe House. And this I would highly, this is a nice safe because I should give the mic to you. Uh, um, uh, safe House is a, is a group that uh, initially started was started by um, uh, Jim Wools, who wrote Fight Club, who's a friend of mine, uh, and another, uh, Dana, what's her name? who did City of Angels and whatever. It's morphed into like three different groups. I, I joined after the, in the second, I was one of the founding members of the second incarnation and the third incarnation, we uh, founded again in Safe House and it's where writers get together with actors once a week and they bring in scenes um, that are bad, but it's only one set of scenes. There are things in progress. You, you show up, a, uh, four people are selected. They show up a, an hour and a half ahead of time. They workshop those scenes cold with very good actors. These are professional people you've seen. Eric Stone Street was in the group for a long time. Uh, and then they put up the scene for the group. And if you've got some talented writers in there, that scene will become a microcosm of your script. And, and as you bring in stuff to Safe House, when you get the right reactions from the group, you start to realize, okay, maybe I've got something. Maybe the whole thing's ready to show. Uh, the best the best thing you can do is write another script, as I mentioned, then go back and look at that script, and you'll be shocked how awful that that script was when you when you do that. And and I just at this point because I, I'm paying bills otherwise, I can just keep re repeating that process, and then I don't have to turn send out something. And and there's a terrible paradox where no one can read a script. There's a there's a point a critical mass of when a script is understandably excellent to the reader. So if you have 85% of a great script, the readers will think it's all shit. You might as well have done zero. For some reason, if you have 86% of a great script, suddenly they understand it and they see potential in it. Uh, and at your level, you want a script that just is stellar. It's just, you know, well, I don't know, maybe you're running a studio right now. But, uh, but, uh, but, but, uh, but if, you're, you know, if you're just one or two gigs into the, the town or less, you want that, what you show to be stellar. Yeah. Right up front. Thank you. Um, I'm a writer myself, and uh, one thing that you mentioned was uh, the little blip in the um, writing process that got you lambasted about the technology blip. Um, oh, yeah. So I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit more about your um, research process when you're developing a new script, because I always have such a hard time kind of like, um, front-loading that, you know? Yeah, well, there's the showrunner life, which is wonderful, because you, you call someone in and they do it. <laughs> it's, so, it's so awesome. And then when they fuck up, you, you, you yell, you know? 
or whatever. Uh, when you're on your own, it's it's all internet and uh, well, I, I have the I have the resource of CAA. So uh, there, I wanted to do some when I wanted to do some spy research on something. Once they they set me up with uh, Tony Mendez of Argo and John and his wife. So I got to have lunch with them. So you're getting horse's mouth. And at this point, I've met cumulatively so many people. I have a Rolodex of Navy SEALs, and I can go to them. That said, even they're behind on stuff. So you have to double check. You have to fact check everybody. Yeah. Um, but but one cool thing can make a sequence. So, yeah. Right over there. So this may be a little bit unusual, but I have a question for you. I'm a feature film director, Hello. and um, I'm just now crossing into television. And I'm developing a show with Gersh uh, based on my own life experiences. And um, that is, and I know you guys are probably going to say, oh, you're crazy, but I used to be a spy. Get out. Wonderful. <laughs> and and uh, I, for, for the agency or for uh, I worked for the or <laughs> <laughs> I worked for the Department of Defense, the Office of Special Investigations oh, with yeah. the U.S. Air Force. Cool, cool. And uh, worked all over the world. I kind of lived a James Bond existence, uh, you know, so... Um, my question to you is, I'm so close to the material. I mean, I know these stories intimately, you know. And the problem I'm having is when I'm trying to get these across, um, the people, the agents that I'm dealing with and the producers I'm dealing with, they're like, oh, no, that would never happen. It oh, did yeah. happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, what, what's your suggestion? How do you handle that in the room? Yeah, it's, uh, well, and, uh, and like the Moscow stories, I have the, the same thing, so I just don't tell them anymore. You know, so that, that, but you right. can't do that because you're trying to monetize uh, your, your your biography. So I mean, uh, the I mean, one, I'm stunned that you can't just say, "Well, I lived it," uh, and that should be enough. Yeah. Uh, maybe it's the quantity. You know, maybe it's just overwhelming them. You know, how amazingly surreal because uh, they're never. One thing that I found they never believe is incompetence. Right. How much incompetence there that someone that some of the biggest espionage was someone with a thumbnail drive walking into like a a, a building and walking out with it and no one stopped them. Right. You know they'll never work in a movie. Well, you know that's a Stuxnet. You know that's how <laughs> exactly. That's, that's, that's I mean I told yeah. him a story about when I had a gun in my mouth, for example, and the hammer got pulled back. You know the the way the metal tastes and the way the gun oil tastes. You know in your mouth and how how do you get out of that situation? They're like, oh no no no, that's that's just way over the top. I said it happened. To me. Yeah, you know? I, well, I, I would say uh, uh, let's let's rewind to one of my uh, suggestions. Uh, fire agent, while well, things are going good, uh, I, I, I think I you, just signed with him. <laughs> no, I, I would I would, and I'm saying this in all seriousness. Uh, you got an agent at Gersh, so that's good. That's a good stepping stone uh, agency. Um, uh, no agents from Gersh here, who I just pissed off. Or, uh, okay, uh, get a manager. Do you have a manager at this point? Here. Oh, good, good. Todd Feldman, by the way. Todd Feldman, <laughs> extraordinary. How's it going, man? Okay, good. My best friend, too. Oh, oh really? Good, good, good. Uh, well, one, I'm stunned. I'm stunned because uh, usually people are all over that stuff. You know, um, yeah. Maybe we should talk later. Yeah, well, it's, a, it's a, yeah, it's a, well, have you, have you we'll write it in narrative form. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I did, and yeah. Uh, and have, they, have they seen it in narrative form or? Well, it's a pilot. I wrote a pilot. It's not yeah. a pitch. It's not, you're saying there's no, no, an no, orally. No, it's a pilot, yeah. And producers. on page there. Yeah. Okay, so no, it's so, a real thing. It's so, happening. So sell it. I would sell it. I try to sell it verbally then, because yeah. because you're going to be intimidating in the room, right? You know, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, cool. I yeah, never carry a gun when I go in, so I don't know why. Yeah, I, I wouldn't piss off as well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, well done. Cool. All right, thank you. Thank I you for your service. It. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Thank you. Uh, 
right there, ma'am. Hi, good evening. I have a question for you. Yeah. Um, I've noticed that we've got a lot of spy um, television shows and movies and things of that nature that center around men. I myself wrote a pilot and it's uh, a period piece and it's centered around women. Yeah. And people love it, but they're like, they're not going to take it. Well, periods always, and this is a huge thing for me because I want to be Oscar period guy. Like when I write specs, uh, it's Oscar period. And in Europe, they have they have none of these problems. Like period, they'll do TV shows. You know, I tried to sell a Three Musketeers thing, and they're like, "Oh, everyone's in costume. Every, but everyone loves Three Musketeers." Um, well, well, one, if this is, uh, uh, well, one, if, if I don't, I don't want to have you pitch it in front of everybody. But, um, but if if it's what I think it might be. Uh, I do know a possible buyer for it. Uh, I'm just guessing. If it's women, it's a woman, and it's a spy, and it's period. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So talk to me after this, because uh, I, I may know someone who actually is interested. But period's working against you. Women, uh, women should be helping you. Uh, right now, it's a it's a hot time uh, for for female driven stuff. Now, broadcast always wants a female protagonist. So if um, if someone's saying no, I would just say they're idiots and then move on period but period you can't blame them for a period because that's that's the prevailing logic is that period's difficult to sell well you know uh, also i'm kind of having like some of the issues that you're having because i didn't do what you did but i was a physical security specialist with department of homeland security <laughs> yeah and when yeah. people hear you tell stories and you say yeah. the first thing they say is they say Mm. They don't believe you. The, the, no, no, they no. I mean, it, it was, and it, you, yes. Uh, by the way, that's a pilot. Yeah, sir. <laughs> All right. How are we doing on time, guys? We have... Good. Yeah, we're good. We're good? Okay, great. Uh, right up front here. I'm sorry, I, I was never a spy. Um, I'm sorry to disappoint. Um, um, so if you were trying to enter the business like now, so if you uh, were to start your career now, do you think that you would follow similar steps as you did before, or do you think you would write similar things? Oh, yeah. Well, the, my, my answer to everything is all of the above. And, and, you're, um, and you don't have a family. You have no kids or anything like that? No. Okay, just scorched earth. Just uh, you, you, you write. Uh, this is you know get get a job that doesn't take your energy, your best energy. Or if I I woke up at five a.m. every day so that my my temp job wouldn't uh, do it. So you get those two hours in every day. Start with a feature. Why? Because a feature can make money even though the feature market sucks. The spec market sucks. A feature can make money for someone tomorrow, and it can still work as a sample for TV. So get that done. Then definitely write a spec. Spec pilot. Don't write. I don't believe in writing uh, a spec pilots based on shows that are on the air. Demonstrative thing, because you're going to lose to everybody's nephew, uh, their niece, their sister. You know, what I mean, who did the same thing. So I'm assuming you don't have like family connections or huge money. To, okay, neither did I. So, uh, scratch. So definitely do that, and then um, rinse and repeat over and over again until you get something brilliant, and then do. All of the contests. The Nickel made me, uh, Princess Grace, uh, Sundance, I got in the top 20. All, if, it, if you remove all those, uh, without those, I would have never broken in. Uh, and just rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. Right, right, right. Every day, five days a week at least. Yeah. I know, it's what, what you knew already, but. <laughs> Keep it in the front row. 
I hate to make this into a, well, here's what I'm working on oh, no, no. situation, but I'm, that's exactly what I'm going to do. Sorry. Oh, no, um, no, no. I've it's... been a career litigator for more years than I care to think about. I'm sure I'm older than you are. Um, I had an idea for a pilot. I had no idea about beginning, middle, end, what the format's supposed to look like. I wrote something that I thought would look like a pilot script. Several people read it. They thought it was amazing. Um, I had a friend of the family who's a um, longtime producer and director take a look at it, and she said, um, okay, but it needs three acts, and um, because it's a lawyer thing, um, it needs to be less talky. Other than that, it looks like it has great potential, and I can't wait to see what you do with it. What is the fastest way to go from, gosh, I think this is what a script would look like, yeah. to making it what a script really should look like? Well, yeah, one, uh, your friend's wrong. It's not three acts, it's five to six acts. So first, so look, at, unless it's, uh, unless it's ca uh, premium cable, and then it's kind of whatever you want. You know, it could be three acts or five, for, you know, because they're paying money and you don't have no com any commercials. So uh, so first decide, decide, is it broadcast or is it cable? Um, broadcast is going to make you more money. It's cable, okay, so it's super edging cable. So the good news is it could be three acts. You're still... People still tend to write in five or six acts for cable, just because you've got television people who've moved. You know, there's there's things that are ingrained, but uh, but yeah, you could do the three act if you want. Um, I would still make sure at the five and six act that you still have many acts built in where there's the feeling of an act out, uh, even though you wouldn't use that for uh, cable. Only in that people are they've got these these circadian rhythms where they want you know to be hooked at certain certain points for that. Uh, so you polish, you polish. Contests are number one um, big, uh, from your end because you're starting from scratch. Or your friend, is, is this a friend you can squeeze to become your surrogate agent or uh, at any level? I don't think so. No, bummer, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, uh, and you're married so you can't like go... Yes, yes. Uh, and children. And, and, and <laughs> Full-time paying bills. Yeah, you go to Orso and meet some agents. And, um, uh, it's been done, not by me. Um, I, well, uh, when, when you start from scratch, the contests are really the only thing you can do other than things like this and, and start, hang out. You guys should like do inventory with each other before you leave. This should be your little mini IFP. Take advantage of seeing who's who and who's what, and um, and and uh, and and if you trust someone, and and don't just hand them a script here, you know, meet them for coffee or make sure you're not you're uh, giving some something to someone who will plagiarize. Uh, I was uh, uh, my student film was plagiarized as a big movie that became a big Broadway hit, and uh, I did not have a, a, the letter of rejection proving it. Um, so you you ideas get stolen. Ideas get stolen all the time. Um, so, but one of you could end up creating connections for each other. Uh, one, one, and once you have it, I would, I would continue to polish and get feedback from people you respect and try the contest. And then if you want to do it the long, hard way, which I did, was I tracked variety. I looked for, I think I mentioned, people who got their new manager wings or the new agent wings, and I did cold submissions. And then you become a telemarketer. You get on the phone, and you have to find that, that Willie Loman inside yourself and uh, get, get them to read it. And it's hard. Yeah. Thanks. But you got a real job, so that's the good news. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Thank you.
back there. Hi, um, this might be just a yes or no question, but I'm curious if you outline or prep your spy stories any different than you would like your drama features or uh, oh yeah yeah spy spy stories are there's they're much more structurally uh uh tyrannical you know what i mean things have to happen at certain times uh you you have to keep people surprised there's, there have to be gotchas little stings even dramatic scenes you want some type of think in terms of some type of reversal even within a scene if you can do it dramatic scenes you can kind of like do i do i'll do a rough off rough outline but you find you start writing them and you say oh would be nice if, nice if a dog came in now and then you'll in second act you realize oh the dog could die that's a great second act reversal you know where a spy thing it's probably not going to happen you're probably going to going to beat out this is where the Russian assassinates him and this is where the you know the uh, the ampule of cyanide gets mixed up with the, the biological weapon you know and all that kind of stuff so uh, yeah so you should do that but never but never unless it's an assignment gig never be um, uh, married to your beat beat sheet it's there to serve you not vice versa all right, I think let me just go one more here and then we'll say goodnight. So you, um, you talked about Gersh as a stepping stone agency, not in an entirely derogatory way, but like, uh, yeah. so tell us, what, what are the advantages to a place like CAA, and are you really out there getting your work for yourself, or is your agent out there helping you, or how's that work? It's an excellent, and, and you know, I, I've had uh, I've had the best and the worst of big agencies. Uh, when CA have been at, at it forever, um, mostly, I have to say, because I, I had an amazing, amazing TV guy, Brad Longcar, I'll give you his name. He's going to hate me tomorrow. He's going to like 40 people, you know, calling him. He, he's a great, great guy. I, I um, and, and, and I'll, I'll speak, speak in cloaked ways. Uh, on the feature side, I've had a hot and cold. I had, I had a, um, uh, well, the, well the, the, short, the short answer is when you, you have to go to a big agency. All roads lead there. Most of, the, most of the packages are done there. Most of the business is there. And when you have the big agency on your side, it is freaking, the laws of physics are your bitch. You know, you can, you can get things done overnight. I mean, I had, an, I, I had a, an agent trying to pull an actor out of a Texas funeral, one call from CAA, and they were just, you know, they were, call, they were begging me, you know, for forgiveness, which was, it was just delightful on so many levels. Um, and, you'll, and you'll get reconnaissance. You'll know about things ahead of time. Uh, and, you'll, and, you'll, and, you'll, and you'll get, it, once you read the signals, you'll understand what's realistic and what's not realistic, which is there. The, the, the downside is the, the big agencies used to be, I was there during the Ovitz period. Uh, the big agencies, remember I told you how glamorous it was, you know, kind of awesome, cool. It was the same way at the big agencies. So you, you were much more treated like an artist, your agent. We, we there at that old IMP building. You would stop by there just if you were on the way. And you call your agent. Your agent would come down. You like hang out. And while you're in the living in, in the area, there'd be oh, there's Paul Verhoeven. You talk with Paul Verhoeven for a while. It was like uh, yeah, you was like oh, it <laughs> wasn't that nice. You it wasn't it wasn't corporate, and they had expense accounts, and they they didn't feel like your agent at that time. Salaries were much lower for agents, so there was a good chance you made roughly the same as your agent. And if you're not making more than your agent, your agent doesn't re respect you the same way. It's just it's true of every aspect of this industry. Whoever makes the most money is the alpha in the room, regardless of what you've achieved. In, in Hollywood, not not in Europe or in their own film. So once the agents got squeezed, 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 and, and these guys are grinded right now, they're grinded to make a buck. They couldn't, uh, they just can't service all their clients. And you can, your career can can wither in four to six 
months easily. That's why most of us now have uh, managers. I have a great manager, David McIlvain over Brillstein, and I credit him with keeping a pulse in my career when things, you know, I've, I'm probably on my seventh career now. So you should, you need a man, you, you have to have someone like that in your life because you are going to have trouble with your agent. Uh, I ended up having a, tr a problem with an agent at CA who had a client who was a movie star and they ended up uh, romantic and giving up their lives just uh, their marriages imploded and he just he had one client at that point so I had to switch agents which is very difficult because now I was switching it to an agent who had no investment in me he hadn't built my career there was no so then you have to rebuild that and that takes three to five years and then that agent after rebuilding it a very good agent Martin Spencer ended up going to another agency so uh, now I've got an excellent agent Matt Martin but it's a new relationship so you you on the feature side, especially if you don't have your that relationship with your agent, you are. It is things like an assignment I'm up for right now at Fox is because of a director I worked with. You know, there are things that are incoming calls. If you want the calls coming out, that comes from trust and and a long term relationship with your agent. Uh, and you have to be sympathetic to the fact that they are. When I say these guys are getting grinded now, oh my God, it's like every day they've got a gun to their head to bill, bill, bill. Yeah, and big, bill, big. Yeah. All right. Well. Thank you so yeah, much sure, for coming yeah. out tonight. Thank this you. Was, we learned so much. <laughs>